If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out at this time. The rest of us are turning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'd like to have you turn there. I'm going to be in several different passages this morning as we wrap up our sermon series on Ecclesiastes with these three topical sermons on the, the concepts that Ecclesiastes brings out that I believe will be a benefit to our church family. I will tell you out of the gate that, uh, I was telling my wife this week, I feel out of my element dealing with, uh, I don't normally preach topically, I should say. I feel very comfortable looking at a passage of scripture, walking us through it, pulling out what God has for us, but to look at a topic like this and to try to index different passages, uh, it's not in my strength. We're going to work through this together, and so uh, I I think what scripture says will be a benefit to us this morning as we look at this topic, but uh, I appreciate your patience As we look at this together, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where I've had you turn. We're going to read verses 9 down through verse 13 as it reveals to us this concept of God's divine mandate for man, and that is the mandate of work. So let's read verses 9 down through verse 13, and then we'll pray and we'll see what God has for us this morning. What gain has the worker from his toil? Verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink, and take pleasure in all his toil, this is God's gift to man. Work is God's divine mandate for your life, and God's beautiful gift for your life. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word in various passages, would you give us insight and help as we seek to determine your heart on this subject? Would you enlighten the eyes of those who are saved that we may see your truth and thus glorify you through it? Would you breathe life into those who are not believers here this morning that they would trust you alone for their salvation? In your name we pray. Amen. Work. It's a word that conjures up All sorts of emotions in people. For some, it may be the main part or even the identity of their existence. Hi, my name is, and this is what I do for a living. It may be what you have devoted yourself to. For others, work is almost a curse word. Few other four-letter words in the English language hold such a repulsion to them. Repulsive nature of this word, work. Where do you fall in that spectrum? How is your current work environment? Would you consider it to be healthy? Invigorating? Or would you consider it to be draining? Tomorrow morning, your alarm will go off, and if you 
hold employment and you work on Mondays, which is the vast majority of us, you will get out of bed and you will start the work week. In your work, have the following words ever been a part of your thinking? Overlooked, overworked, undervalued, underpaid, and we could go on and on and on. Recently in England, there was a building that was being renovated, a historic building, and uh, they found a note in it from 1852 from the headmaster that was serving there in the work environment who had just listed several things that were going to be characteristic now of his workforce as he was laying out, as, as we would say, maybe the, the law of the land or the office procedures. I'd like to share a few with, uh, with you this morning. This notice was given to all of the workers in this building. Dated 1852, this firm has reduced, number one, the firm has reduced the hours of work. And so now the clerical staff will only have to be present between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. on all weekdays. Number two, your clothing must now be of a sober nature. The staff will not disport themselves in raiments of bright colors. Nor will they wear hose unless they are in good repair. Number three, overshoes and top coats may not be worn in the office, but neck scarves and headwear may be worn in inclement weather. A stove is provided for the staff. Number four, coal and wood must be kept in the locker. It is recommended that each member of the clerical staff bring four pounds of coal each day during cold weather. No member of the clerical staff, number five, may leave the room without permission from the supervisor. No talking is allowed during business hours. I could go on and on. There's some here that are really hilarious. Now that the hours of business have been drastically reduced to now only be between 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., the partaking of food is allowed between 11.30 and noon, but work during this time will on no account decrease. Members of the staff will provide their own pencils, However, a new sharpener is available upon application. I love the last one. The owners recognize the generosity of the new labor laws, but will expect a great rise in output of work to compensate for these near-utopian conditions. (laughs) So maybe now your work doesn't seem quite as bad. Work is a fact of life. Each one of us must come to grips with the fact that our life involves work. In fact, we've studied our way through Ecclesiastes. We've seen that this book is extremely practical in every way. It's, it's earthy. It's, it, it could have been written yesterday as it applies to every single aspect of our life. And all through this book, Solomon continues to draw our attention to the fact that there are a few characteristics that are just true of our life here under the sun on this earth. And one of them is this combination of work and toil. In fact, the concept of labor, laboring, working, toiling, is one of the dominant themes, one of the major themes in the book. Ten passages in Ecclesiastes 12 chapters deal with this concept of working under the sun. Working here in this on this earth. 
In fact, it's the way that the book begins. Look back at chapter 1. It's how he, uh, he opens up everything in the book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's the very beginning of the entire book. What gain is your work? Ecclesiastes opens the door for us to understand this concept of work from God's perspective. And before I give you the outline of the sermon and we begin walking through what the Bible says about work, I'd like to ask two questions. We've answered them earlier, one of them earlier in our series in Ecclesiastes. Many of you were probably not here for that. And so let's ask the question, what is work? That's a good question, isn't it? What is work? Work is the productive activity that you participate in as a part of your life. The productive activity that you participate in as part of your life. It's not necessarily any activity. Not all activity is work. But productive activity can be classified as work. And I'll say it now in case I don't say it later. Um, Good work would be productive activity that's geared towards human flourishing as the Bible defines it. You can have productive activity that, is, that negates humans, that goes against truth. That is bad work, immoral work, would be work that you would participate in that productively encourages that which the Bible speaks against or that goes against human flourishing. But good work endeavors would be productive work that enhances or continues or is for the benefit of how the Bible categorizes what is best for humans, human flourishing. This work could be by nature of your employment. Maybe you work in a creative field where you're building or manufacturing or engineering. Maybe you're designing a bridge that would that would help people use less gas to get from point A to point B, and thus they could have a more productive work day by driving across the bridge rather than around. Maybe you are in the process of creating technology or cars. Work could also be in the service industry, where you're providing some sort of service to benefit other people in their time of need. Now, we have to understand there's a difference between work and employment. You may be employed for the work that you do. You certainly are not employed for all of the work that you do. You may be employed in the service industry, then as a hobby, you work in the creative nature of woodworking or gardening. That there is work that is productive that you can be involved in that is outside of your employment. And so I want to make sure from the outset that when we talk about this concept of work, that we take it beyond just this is my job, this is my employment, but it extends to every human being and transcends your status of employment. Maybe you've retired from your employment but still find wise activity, as Scripture would say, and being involved in productive work. Perhaps you have no need of compensation for your work because of your life stage, so you give yourself to productive activity for for the kingdom's sake without any thought of compensation. 
Maybe you find yourself in, a, in the most demanding situation. Choosing to be a stay-at-home parent, a worker, a keeper of the home. One of the hardest jobs is to be a faithful, hard-working keeper of the home. Much work that is often overlooked and rarely valued, especially in our society today. Ecclesiastes reveals to us this concept of good work. But it also brings in this concept of toil. So that's what work is. What is work? Work is productive activity that you engage in in your everyday life. Good work would be productive activity that, that enhances God's mission as he has outlined it for moral human flourishing. And then we have this concept of toil. Toil is the frustration, the blood, sweat, and tears that comes with the work that you do. You get tired. You make mistakes. Your mind is no longer able to keep up with the productivity level that's required as a part of your work. The work that you do, the, the, the productive actions has taken a toll on your body. And so that you can no longer be productive in that same environment. You would call that wear and tear toil on your body. And so on this earth as we work, we will also have toil that's a part of our work. But it's important important that we separate them. And I'll show you why in scripture in just a minute. Many of us build things and... Maybe as a hobby, like I'm so glad that any of my minuscule woodworking skills is only on the hobby level because if it wasn't, our family would starve, okay? We have a console table that I built that is currently in our living room and it looks, it looks kind of nice unless you turn it upside down and look at how it's put together and it was during my incredible woodworking career that I, dis- that I discovered pocket screws and how I could fasten this table together. But the problem is I didn't know how to use pocket screws. And so if you turn the table over, thus you will see toil, right? And all the mistakes and all the empty holes that I put that didn't need it and all the holes that were drilled too far or too big and all this stuff, right? Because on the, if you look at it from the outside, you see work and if you look under it, you see toil everywhere because that's the way it happens, right? You have work and toil, they go hand in hand. So as we look into this concept of work this morning from, from the Bible's perspective, a theology of work, God's divine mandate, God's gift to you, I want to offer you a four-part outline that I pray that will set you on the right path as you understand this concept of work from God's perspective, okay? So I'll give you all four of them from the outset, and then we'll walk through each one. Number one, work is part of God's character. Number two, work is blessed by God. Number three, toil is a result of the curse. And number four, believers can please God through good work. And so I want to briefly go through the first three, and then we'll spend the remainder of the morning on that last point. Number one, work is a part of God's character. In contrast to all of the other gods in existence, little g, that people, false gods, that people would devote their lives to, whether it be Greek gods, 
This is often referenced in this context. In contrast to those, our God is not a God of leisure. That normally when you see false gods portrayed in some sort of man-made God, and some sort of man-made origin story of the world, you will see gods leisurely laying back and requiring humans as their serfs and slaves to do all of their work for them. Is the common picture. But the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is not a God of leisure. He is a God of work. The world did not come into existence because of some chaotic war that happened between the gods, nor did it come into existence because of some chaotic war that happened between man, as, as the Greek gods, uh, as the Greeks will, will tell you happened. And through all this conflict and chaos, the world was brought into existence as the gods looked on. But rather, our world was created through the very work of Yahweh, through the very work of God, that God worked to create our world. And so we first see his creating work in the six days of creation, Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to give you a lot of references. I'll read them for you. If you're keeping track, you can just jot them all down and go back and read them later. If you don't have a pen or pencil with you, you're welcome to, to email me and I'll send you all these passages. Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. That our God is a God who, as a part of his character, is a working God. And on the sixth day, he ceased from his labor. Now, this labor was not a labor that exhausted him or, or that depleted his energy in any way. But it still was a God of work. John five seventeen, Jesus said, my father is working until now. And I am working. His creative work ceased on the third day. But then we, have, we see his sustaining work in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, talking about Jesus, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. For by him all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They consist. They are sustained. And so God, through his work, it, through his sustaining power and his sustaining work is working out his character by holding together every atom in the universe. And if he did not continually work to do that, everything would fly apart into chaos and be destroyed. Now this does not mean that God is expelling and being depleting of energy, being depleted of energy, but he is a God who is working. It's part of his character. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is a working God. In our scripture reading, we saw not only his sustaining work, but his saving work. And that God breathes life into those who are dead and thus redeems and saves his people. We also see God's sanctifying work. That he is the one who is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we go on and on and on. His, his, also seen at the beginning of our passage, his restraining work in restraining Satan. God and Satan are not equals in a cosmic battle. 
God is at work restraining the forces of evil. And so we see God is working, and because work is a part of God's character, listen carefully, friend, we'll see this more later, but you faithfully represent him well when you work well also. Number two, work is blessed by God. Work is blessed by God. God creates man as part of God's work. He creates man in his own image. Genesis chapter 1 says, So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It goes on and on and on to emphasize that God, through his work, created man in his own image. And thus, if God in his character is a worker, what would you expect man to be as part of his character? You would expect man to also be a worker. And so then it would make sense, like, like if, you were, if you were reading the Bible and paying attention and thinking carefully, you would say, well, if God has been working for six days and he creates man in his own image, what would you expect him to do to man? To give him a mission and to give him uh, you know, kind of a, a work assignment, per se. And that's exactly what happens. Because Genesis 1, 28, the next verse, and God blessed them and what's the first fruit of their work and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Your work is to fill the earth, work for human flourishing, what is good for mankind, and to subdue the earth, to take care of the earth, he continues, and to have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. I'm going to share with you my my opinion on what God is doing here. I could not find this in any of my reading on work, so I hold this carefully. Anytime you have an original thought, you ought to be really careful, right? But I kept going back to this. I'm like, man, I see a parallel here. God creates and sustains. And then what does he ask man to do? Create and sustain. Go fill the earth. Go use your creative resources that I have given you to create and subdue. And then go have dominion over all the earth. Sustain the earth. Take care of what I have created for you. And I may be totally off in that, okay? But friends, I see a direct parallel in Scripture. To where it's like, God creates us in his image. This is what God does. Therefore, this is what you should do. Reflect God in your work. Because work is a command from God. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth. Work is a moral issue. You must work. If you are not working in some way, you are in disobedience to God. I didn't say you had to be employed. But if you are not being productive in your efforts in a good way, you are in disobedience to God. It is a moral issue in reflecting God's character, the command given. It's not as though God just wants you to stay busy. 
You have a responsibility to be involved in productive activity that reflects the creating and sustaining hand of God in this world. And I could go on and on about illustrations of what that looks like, and we'll get to some of that later. I have about two hours of material I'm going to get through in about 50 minutes, so if I don't get through it all, I'll just talk fast at the end. I think it's also important for us to remember that this work is not some sort of punishment by God. This is pre-fall. So there is a mindset out there that I'm going to work and I'm going to like punish myself to work as hard as I can for like 35 years or 30 years or 25 years so I can retire early and then I'm going to go have leisure and do what I want for the rest of my life because work is, work is a curse. And God says, no, 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 no. Work is given pre-fall. Work is given in in an ideal, perfect, no-sin scenario. Because it's best for man, and it, it, it gives purpose, it gives joy, it gives fulfillment. When you give yourself to productive activity. So work is not a result of the fall. This means that work is not inherently evil to be avoided at all costs. This also means that productive work is not to be ceased from in your life. Except, except for when God says cease. Those are two times. When you're dead, on the Sabbath, rest. We'll talk about that next week. Next week, we'll look at God's divine mandate and gift of rest. But without a proper understanding of God's divine mandate and gift of work, you cannot have a good understanding of rest. God, in his infinite and perfect wisdom, has given mankind the responsibility of working to manifest the image of God in his life through good work. Productive and creative activity is a gift from God. And if that's the case, then why do I hate my job? Because of toil. Number three, toil is a result of the curse. Genesis chapter 3, 16 through 19. To the woman he said, after the fall, I shall surely multiply your pain in childbearing, creative replenishing of the earth, will now include pain and suffering and danger. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. And Adam, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. If you're here and you're a vegetarian, that's a result of the curse. Okay? Sorry. Verse 19 of Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and of dust you shall return. What is the toil that's given to Eve? The act of giving birth painful and dangerous rather than a heart of sweet submission to loving leadership. The woman will struggle with God's order for the family. Secondly, was a toil given for Adam? that food will come hard from the earth. The earth will work against you as you seek to subdue it. 
You will give your life to hard, sweaty labor until you're in the ground that you're working so hard to subdue. We have those of our church who their daily efforts are toiling the ground. Toiling with the ground, tilling the ground, toiling with the ground, planting, harvesting. We had the opportunity to go and sit on a harvester this past fall. But my boys on a big old, I don't know what you call those things, harvesters, combines. There you go, there's the word. And, uh, and the guy that we're riding with says, you see all that stuff? That's called, and he said this word that was talking about weeds, but it was a lot more technical than that. And there's this, like, weed that grows up and grows all over the corn and chokes it out. He said, we do whatever we can, but we can never get rid of it. We try and we try and we try and we try and we spray and we spray and we spray, but it just, it just, that's toil. That in the new heavens and the new earth, friend, we're going to take a seed of corn and we're going to put it in the ground and it's going to sprout up like 200 ears, you know? It's going to be awesome. Farming is not going to be an industry in the new heavens and new earth because everybody is going to be able to farm in their backyard because it's going to be so easy because there's no toil. The ground will no longer be cursed to work against you. You know what our yards would look like if that were the case? Oh, man, my grass. You put fertilizer, you go put fertilizer, your grass is like, hey, no thanks, I'm good. I got you this year. I'll cut myself. (laughs) Whatever, I don't know. No toil in our work. So this brings us to a question. If our responsibility is work and work comes with toil, is there any hope for us while we're here? I mean, is the only response that we have to say, okay, all right, Pastor Joe, I get it. I have to work with toil. It's going to be miserable. Maybe I'll try to witness with people, to people with a frown on my face at work because it's miserable. It's terrible. And maybe my work is only a platform for witnessing and evangelization or to get money. And I'll go to work and I'll work hard. And, and the only hope that I can have, the only joy that I can have is to know that one day in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, one day I'm going to work with no toil. Is that the only hope I have? Am I like doomed? I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm 14. You're telling me that for the rest of my life, I'm just doomed to misery in my workplace. Well, no, lastly, believers can still please God through good work, find fulfillment, find joy, find purpose through good work. I want to be very clear before we get into this for the rest of our time that there is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can't work hard enough to please God. You can't. If you try, there are only two responses. Either you're going to get proud thinking that you did it, or if you're realistic, you're going to live in utter depression realizing that you'll never meet up to God's standards. You can't earn God's love. No matter how good your work is, it's still tainted by sin. So listen carefully. When we talk about good work, we're not talking about working in order to make God love you. We're not talking about working in order to gain heaven. Friend, that work has been completed. 
It's done. It's finished. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. You say, what's finished? Everything needed for salvation has been accomplished. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ, power, it's done. It's completed by God. So you can't work for that. But believers have hope in that when you are resting in the shed blood of Christ is the final work being done on your behalf. You can find joy and purpose in this, on this earth by using your work to reflect his character. We're going to look at what that looks like. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's where we're at. Turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 if you're there. Verse 12. I perceive there's nothing better for them, that's people who are living under the sun, to do than to be joyful and to do good. That's do good work. Assumed there. We're talking about toil, talking about work. Do good. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The two main passages that I'd like to show you. It's all through here. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave, Sheol, to where you're going. In Ecclesiastes, these are the two hooks in which we'll hang our hat. These are the two hooks to say God has given us good work and has given us the opportunity to enjoy that here on this earth. How do we do that? How do we do that? I've got a list of several of, uh, I don't know how many, I, don't put numbers, I didn't put numbers on them, but let's just go through these one by one. Number one, you'll find joy in working well, good work. Good productive work, because good work involves being all in with your responsibilities. Being all in. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. What does that word heartily mean? It means with your soul. It means that you give blood, sweat, and tears into what you are doing. That means that if you choose, because you can choose to do a bunch of different things, right? If you choose to devote your productive energies to something for the benefit of mankind, that you are all in. That you don't do anything halfway. Give yourself fully to good work. If something is worth doing, it's worth doing right. And it's worth doing well. So give yourself fully to good work. Don't, don't do all these little half things here and half things there. Find out how God has gifted you, what your desires are to be productive in this world, and, and do that with everything you've got. Do it heartily, as to the Lord. Good work involves being all in. Good work involves delayed reward. There's almost nothing in this life 
that's worth doing that has instant results. Very, very, very few things. Besides microwaving, microwaving mac and cheese, you know? And that's like, that's like instant good results. But other than that, it's like there are very few things in this life that you can dedicate yourself to that you're like, I'm going to get an instant good reward from this. Most work takes long effort. Again, Colossians 3. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as a reward. And what, what Paul is referencing to the, to the Christians at Colossae is he is saying that when you work, that your reward, your ultimate reward is going to be in heaven. Because the immediate rewards from your work are not apparent. I mean, how many of you are in fields where the results from your work may not ever be seen in your lifetime? I mean, Edison didn't invent LEDs, right? You may be one step in your work that will be benefited, that people benefit in the future. And you're like, well, I don't have anything that important. We'll talk about that in just a minute. This is extremely, I should say extremely, this is true. Something can't really be extremely true. There's true, it's not. This is very viable for you to understand in the Christian life, and it's true, that, that God will reward you for living for him on this earth. Thirdly, good work involves realizing that you're working for Christ. Again, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, do you work heartily, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward, the inheritance is your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And in the context, what he's saying here is that in everything that you're doing, if someone is is above you and you are aligning yourself under them, you serve them as though you are serving Christ. That your supervisor was placed in that role by Christ. And yes, he or she is a sanctifying influence on your life. Right? But he's put there by God and you serve that person as though you're serving God because you are. When you are properly living in submission, you are giving a picture of how you live in submission to Christ. In fact, you will notice that those who are unsubmissive in certain areas of their life normally are unsubmissive in all the areas of their life. That normally, if you find a person who has a hard time aligning under the boss at their current job, it's because they did it their job before and their job before, and they will at their next job. And you find a person who is unsubmissive in their heart, and it normally is true across the board. Versus when you look at this, you say, I'm aligning under because I'm serving Christ. Good work not only helps you realize you're working for Christ, but it also keeps you from sinful activities. It keeps you from sinful activities. An idle mind is the devil's workshop, right? And idle hands are the devil's hands. That's not just some pithy saying. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 10 to 13. You don't have to turn there. You write it down. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. And this is prescriptive for the church. So it is though Paul like he wrote to the Thessalonians, is standing here and he is saying this to you under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This command is for you. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, 
but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Some of you get in trouble because you don't have enough to do. You need to go get a job or a second job. You need to be busy or you will become a busybody. Because here's the thing, you will do something. Oh, I'm so exhausted. I just need to veg for a minute. No, you're not going to veg. You're going to sit down, and if you're not sleeping, you're going to think about something, or you're going to play video games, which is action, or you're going to watch TV, which is interaction. You're going to do something. We'll talk about that next week. But if you have nothing to do, friend, you are in sin. If you are a busybody, did you hear about so-and-so? You know what I do for my work? I get on the phone, and I talk to people three, four hours a day, and I tell them everything that's going on in the whole world. That's a busybody. Go do something. Well, I can't get out of the house. We can, you can find things to do that are beneficial for people, like praying. That'd be huge, right? Or working with your hands in any aspect that you can, or volunteering here, or volunteering there. You must stay busy. That is a command from God. Idleness is sin. So good work keeps you from sinful activities. Because you will do something, and you will give an account for what you do, so therefore do good. History has proven that the more time a culture has for leisure, the more sinful it becomes. Trace history. The more time you spend in leisure, the more disconnected you get from the everyday person, and the more that our culture distances itself from subsistence living, the more sinful it becomes. My father-in-law, before he went to heaven, man, he used to jog every day. He jogged every day until like six months before he passed away. He was with a brain tumor jogging on the side of the road. And he used to tell me, right after we got married, son, you need to learn how to exercise. And you need to exercise until you can't breathe. You need to run so fast that you're sucking wind. You know why? Of course, it's your father-in-law. You're like, why, sir? You know? (laughs) Because in that moment, you're not thinking about sin. You're thinking about surviving. (laughs) That's what he would say. You know what? He's right. He's right. Give yourself to good work. It will keep you from sin. Good work also, as we'll see next week, prepares you for rest. Ecclesiastes 5.12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but a full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Barring a medical condition, friend, if you are having trouble sleeping, it's because you're not working hard enough when you're awake. Barring some sort of, I'm not trying to be unkind to someone who has a medical condition that promotes insomnia or something, but you all know what it's like at periods in your life where you come home from work and, you know, that clock strikes whatever your bedtime is at our house. It's about 10 o'clock because I'm a wimp when it comes to late nights. And, and you just collapse into bed and think, I, don't, I can't move another muscle. And you know what? You sleep well. 
But in an age of leisure, too often we spend our days in leisure and our nights in restless sleep because we're not being productive, we're not working like we should. Six days work shall be done, but on seventh day you shall have a Sabbath solemn rest. Pastor, I can't come to church, I'm too busy. Could it be, could it be that in the other six days you're not being as productive as you could be? As you're, if you're as productive as you could be in the six days, you could set aside a day to give to the Lord. But what if I'm in a profession? We're going to shift gears a little bit and ask a question. What if I'm in a, prof- in a profession that isn't really contributing anything big? Like, I, I'm not doing something super important. Is that still good work? I'm a janitor. I, I wait tables. I, you know, I work at Drive and Shine. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a secretary. I'm, you know, all, all these things. Is there, is there something, does it still apply to me, Pastor? The church has always valued every profession as sacred work before God. I'm going to read you some quotes and then I'm going to prove it to you. Martin Luther was known for this. He says the following, What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it in heaven before the Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which that obedience flows. In other words, your word is sacred because you have God's life living inside of you, and you are living and working in faith to the best of your ability. Therefore, you are in sacred work. He goes on to say, the idea that the service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like, is without a doubt the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us to be more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in the church and by the works done there? The whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in home, kitchen, workshop, and field. What he's saying is every job is sacred. Well, pastor, you work for God. I work for someone else. No, you don't, friend. No, you don't. We all work for the Lord. He continues in his context, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. But all these works are measured before God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework is often more acceptable to God than all the fastings and all the other works of a monk or priest because that person lacks faith. I want to give you an example of why this is true. Every work is sacred because even the most menial tasks being done by the hands of faith can be done as though it's being done by the hand of God and can have an impact for kingdom living. There's a man named George Mueller who lived in the mid-1800s. He ran an orphanage, and George Mueller was known for his answers to prayer, or for God's answers to prayer through him, I should say. He was known for his prayer life. He would pray and pray and pray and pray, and, and things would happen. Amazing things. One of my favorite stories is the story of George Mueller sitting down at his orphanage, and, and the house 
the house mother of the orphanage, comes as they sit down to dinner and says, Mr. Mueller, um, you have 300 children here, and, and we're, we don't have any food. I mean, not like, oh, we're down to using the old canned food we bought last year. We have nothing. And so it's, George Mueller has all the kids sit down, and he prays, and he thanks the Lord for the food that God will provide. And then they sit there. And they sit. And they wait. And then there's a knock on the door, and a baker comes in and says, Last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches of bread for you. I'll bring them all in. And so the baker comes in from his cart and brings three, three large batches of bread that he had spent all night baking. And he leaves, and a few minutes later there's another knock on the door, and there's a milkman whose cart had broken down, just so happened right in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed, so he asked George Mueller, do you have any need for some free milk? In fact, we do. We have children who've been waiting for this milk that God would provide. Ten large cans, just enough to feed 300 thirsty children. And you say, God used a milkman and a baker. I'm neither one of those. No, he didn't, friend. God used the farmer who grew that wheat. And he used the plowman who plowed the fields for the wheat. And he used the mill, the girl at the mill who would walk that donkey around and mill that wheat over and over again. And then he used the mill, the wheat store to sell to the baker. And not only did he use that, he used an artisan to build an oven. And he used someone to cut wood for the oven. And inside that oven, as he placed those loaves of bread, he had to transport them once he had them. And so God used a carpenter to build a cart. And God used a farmer to train a horse so that that baker could get to George Mueller. God used a blacksmith to form that tin for, for, or, or the aluminum for those milk jugs. God used someone sitting down and milking a cow thinking, does my work even matter? God used a farmer to birth that milk cow. He used someone feeding those cows every day, keeping their stalls clean. He used probably a different carpenter, maybe the same one, different cart. Carpenter didn't, didn't even do a very good job because the wheel broke. He still used him. And God used all those people with their little menial tasks to accomplish his mission. Friend, listen carefully. Nothing's too small for God. You know what this building would be like if nobody knew how to turn on the lights and nobody knew how to clean I'd hear about it. Do you know what this building, you know what the service would be like if nobody knew how to run sound? Nate's back there running sound. The lights, I mean, we've experienced what it's like for the lights to flicker and not come on at the right time. Or if nobody knew how to lay carpet or build pews. And every single one of those acts I wonder if the pew you're sitting in right now, somebody assembled, and God used those hands to make this service possible. No task is too small for God, friend. So we live in faith, remembering that for 20 plus years, Jesus was a carpenter. 
before his three years of preaching. Your work is not just something that you do. Your work as a child of God made in his image is to be creative and productive so you can subdue the earth. What does it look like to subdue the earth? To subdue the earth means that, that you take, that, that you discover oil and somebody discovered that through oil you can get petroleum, through petroleum you can create plastic, and through plastic you can make it clear and it can hold water so that when somebody preaches from this pulpit, they don't have to run to the St. Joe River to get a drink when they, when they need to cough. That's subduing the earth, friends. It's being creative like God created. Different because we don't create ex nihilo, right? We don't create out of nothing. But being creative is exemplifying the character of God in that way. Of working. I'm currently halfway through my sermon and I'm out of time. So rather than speaking quickly, I'll just give you a couple highlights, okay? Your work is a platform for the gospel. In that, you will be responsible for telling people about Christ in whatever venue that you can. That should not be a burden and a guilt put on your life that's like, my, my, my job doesn't allow me to share the gospel, or if I share the gospel, I'm, again, I, I'm not using company resources correctly. I, I understand all of that. And please don't go down the road of being immoral in your work so you can have a moral platform for the gospel, Okay? but be developing redemptive relationships that result in sharing the truth because nobody's going to look at your work and say, man, you cut a straight line. Who is your God and how can I be saved? Nobody's going to say that. But when you exemplify the character of God in your life and you add a name to that, Jesus, people go, that makes sense. And you've now built a bridge That as God gives you an opportunity to put a name to the example you've been living, the name of Jesus Christ, that God may work through that and use your platform to save. If you put on the glasses of faith, Tim Keller's given multiple things that your work, that you start seeing your work, okay? And I just want to give you a couple of them. You... You, you look at your work this way, you're like, oh, I've got to get up and go to work tomorrow morning. It's terrible. Toil, toil, toil. You know, and then we take faith, and we put on the glasses of faith, and here's what you see. Without faith, your work will destroy you because you will become prideful when you succeed, and you will become destroyed when you fail. But with faith, you find that you can faithfully serve the glory of God. Number two, faith gives a dignity and worth to all work. Value even in the most menial of tasks. I mean, how many times do you think that person milking that cow thought they were probably just, what am I doing with my life? I got a bucket and I got a stinky cow and I'm just milking. And yet, God's preserving these children's lives through that. And you do in an excellent way to the glory of God and that good, productive work. And you find value, you find dignity, you find worth. Number three, faith gives you a moral compass without which work can very easily corrupt you. 
You'd be tempted to earn that extra dollar by bending the rules just a little bit. Squeezing all the profit you can, even if it means cutting corners so that the work that you do may be profitable, but is no longer excellent and is no longer beneficial for people. Because then when they get in that car, even though you may have gotten a bigger profit, they're now stranded on the side of the road and it was done purposefully to make more profit. Good work. There are many more. Those are the ones, highlights I'd like to share with you. I want to give you um, six ways that your work reflects the character of God really quickly. Number one, by creating, you reflect God as the creator. Number two, by adding value to your work, you show God's eternal value. Number three, by supporting yourself and becoming independent on your work. These are from Wayne Grudem. You reflect God's independence from his creation. Number four, by enjoying the fruit of your work. You ever sat back, looked at something you did and thought, whew, okay. You know that's what God did at creation? He sat back and he's like, this is good. You're like, I've never created anything that was good. Well, then work harder. And a hobby and sit back and go, I'm going to enjoy this. Baking a cake, right? Anything like that. By doing good for others, number five, you reflect God's love, mercy, grace, and care. By serving one another and relating in love, you reflect God's Trinitarian nature and his relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Friend, I know I just breezed through all those. We could spend 15 minutes on each one. But you need to understand something. Work is what you will be doing for all of eternity. Productive work without toil. Working, innovating, sustaining, cultivating, subduing. All without the effects of sin. Can you imagine? So live on this earth as a citizen of heaven. Working well to the glory of God. Any productive activity that's a benefit to human flourishing as is defined by scripture can be called good work and can be called pleasing to God. So be busy about good, productive work. Heavenly Father, there's so much more to be said. Maybe this would be just the beginning of a study for someone personally who would begin to recognize the intricacies of how and why we were created to find purpose and value in being productive for the kingdom of God. May we never see our occupation simply as a means of income. May we never see our work as self-serving and may it never be said of any believer that they are being productive in, a, in an immoral work that is damaging to your creation. But may we give ourselves to good work. May we give ourselves to be reminded that even the smallest of tasks done in faith in a productive, excellent way is done in a way that reflects your character and thus it is glorifying to you. 